Thank you, Charlotte. <clears throat> we are familiar with this verse and these verses over the past few weeks. And this message today sort of concludes that series, even though we're a day or a week removed from Vacation Bible School. It's also connected then to our message next week. Ephesians 6, 10 through 18 say this, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in His mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's evil schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Therefore, put on the full armor of God, so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground, and after you've done everything, to stand. Stand firm, then, with the belt of truth buckled around your waist, with the breastplate of righteousness in place, and with your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. In addition to all of this, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. And pray in the Spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. With this in mind, be alert and always keep on praying for all the Lord's people. Let's pray. Father, we thank you. Once again, for the gift that you've given us, we thank you that we can learn, we can know, we can study, we thank you that we can trust, and that we can begin to apply incredible things in our life and be transformed. Father, I ask that you open our hearts, help us, Father, to, uh, to be receptive to your word today, the understanding of your word today. We ask, Father, that you put it upon our minds and our hearts, this drive, this desire to apply And in all things to remember the glory and love of Jesus Christ that gives us the reason for being. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, I had the, uh, yesterday when I was out out in the shed, I was out working and I had the radio turned on. I was listening to the national championship game from 20 years ago uh, on the radio. Uh, Listen to some some of the names, you know, and I just, I kind of got taken back. Uh, to that night in Ohio State against Miami. And uh, it was just a wonderful, wonderful thing to listen to this again. We're coming up on that. We're coming up on football season. That's the way it goes, and I love it. And I think most of you love it as well, or like it anyway. It's interesting, though, about football. You know, you can almost compare, I think, the preparation of a football player to these different pieces of armor that we've been going through over the past couple of weeks. You know, whether it's the breastplate, you know, the, the shoulder pads go down, they protect the chest, not just the shoulders. Uh, they quite literally wear a belt. Uh, they, they have special shoes on. And of course, the most noticeable thing is the helmet. All of these things we see on a football player, you could even call the offensive line a shield Uh, if you will. I know we refer to that as a wall often, but a shield maybe. But with all of this stuff that they have and all of these things that they put on and the preparation they do and all the hard hitting that happens, without the ball, there's no game. 
without this little tiny piece of pigskin, none of that stuff matters. I, I mean, you can have the you can have the band. You can have a hundred thousand people show up. You can have the band playing. You can have the cheerleaders cheerleading. You can have uh, you can have the, the the different teams, the offense, defense, run out on the field, line up against each other. But if there's no ball, it's just a waste of a good Saturday. That's all it is. I wonder how many times we go through life without the ball. Think about it. Everything's measured against the ball, isn't it? First downs, measure where the ball are. Uh, touchdowns, measure where the ball are. Whether you're getting 1.2 point, 3 points, or 6 points, it determines where the ball goes. It's determined by where the ball goes. The difference between a, a reception and an incomplete pass, a fumble, all of these things revolve around the ball. The line of scrimmage is where the ball sets. Take away the ball, you've got nothing. You can have every football player with all the stuff on that they're supposed to have. And if you don't have the main point for being there, once again, you've got nothing. You know, with many of these different pieces of armor that we've talked about over the past few weeks, whether it's truth or righteousness, peace with God, faith or salvation, it's almost as if we acquire many of them. Oh, we've got to put them on. But they are presented to us and available, and we acquire those by following Jesus Christ. And then we get the chance to strengthen and use it to protect us. The sword, however, is something we haven't covered, and the sword is a different animal. You see, the difference with the sword is it must be taken up. It must be used. It must be practiced with. It must become so well known that it becomes an extension of our own self. Church, a master swordsman doesn't know where his arm ends and the sword begins. And he doesn't care. Because that's the point. Everything he does, wherever he goes, certainly in battle, it becomes an extension of himself. The swords were used by both knights and Roman soldiers, known as a gladius, Roman soldiers and knights, in close hand-to-hand combat. They really weren't used very often on the back of a horse in the middle of a charge or in the middle of a battlefield. That was, that was done by a lance or a spear in, the Roman, uh, in Roman times. But on the ground, that's when the sword was used in life and death situations, locked in hand-to-hand combat. In other words, the swords were used when it was time to get real serious. Picture two combatants, you and another. You, the knight, meeting a combatant on the battlefield. Both of you get unhorsed, knocked off onto the ground. As you come to, you face each other in the middle of this battlefield. What we notice about the foe standing across from us is that he's armored as well. It's different looking than your armor. It's scarred, blackened, jagged, and ugly. But make no mistake, it's pretty strong. It's pretty thick armor. But that's not what worries you. You've got your armor on. We've been talking about armor. The last five weeks we've been talking about armor. Four weeks, six weeks, I, you know, 
We've been talking about you've got your armor on. That's not what worries you. What worries you is the fact that you notice this enemy has a long, dark sword dripping with blood and hatred and ignorance, and he knows how to use it really well. And you? You reach to your side, and what do you find? I'm not even going to tell you what you find. That's up to you. What do you find? Do you find your friend, your faithful companion, your sword that you know well? Or do you find an empty scabbard? Maybe it's not an empty scabbard. Maybe it's there, but it's foreign to you. Have no idea, have no idea how to wield this power. You find yourself perhaps unarmed. Oh, I realize you have your armor. But remember, this is hand-to-hand. We've got the swords out now, or at least a sword. It's time to get serious. How strong is your armor going to be without the sword? What chance do you really have? You may be able to absorb a few hits, but you can't block, you can't parry, much less go on the offense. And strike after strike rains down upon your armor, and the whole time you're kicking yourself, wondering why you didn't bring your sword, or at the very least, why you don't know how to use it. Why didn't I use it? Why didn't I practice with it? Why didn't I know it? After all, it was there. It was there. And I'll tell you what, if you don't have one, I'll give you one. And that matter of fact, I'll make a promise to you, if you don't have one, you want one, I'll give you this one right here. After, after the message, I'm going to need it for a couple minutes, all right? It was there. We could have used it. We could have practiced with it. It was available. In fact, it was hanging up with the rest of my armor. Once in a while, I would even parade with it, wouldn't I? I'd shine it up, and I'd walk into the throne room with my sword. Didn't really know how to use it, but I had it. When it comes to battle, I realize it's not with me when it really counts. What is the Bible? We say it is the Word of God, but what exactly does that mean? What is its nature? How powerful is it? What are some of the the things about Scripture that we can trust? What does it include? What's it do? Today, I I went with a little different preparation uh, than I normally do in, in messages or in lessons. I want to give us an appetizer for our new Sunday school class. We're going to start second Sunday of September. The second Sunday of September, we're going to start a new Sunday school class talking about some of the fundamental sort of basic understandings of what Scripture is, who God is, what it means to be a Christian. We're not going to dive, I mean, just incredibly deep into some of these things. It's an understanding that Christians need to have. I'm looking forward to this. We're going to have some videos attached to it. We get to use uh, some of the things from uh, uh, what's called the Gospel Project, another some videos from the Bible Project. I mean, it's just a, it, it's a uh, curriculum that I'm putting together. Brian and Randy are going to be a part of that. But today we get a glimpse of some of these lessons. First thing I want to know about your sword, about Scripture, is the revelation of Scripture, the revelation 
of Scripture. The Bible is what's known as special revelation. By the way, we're going to be all over this thing today, not in one specific text. Uh, fewer verses than we usually use, actually, because they're talking about the Bible. It's known as special revelation. This is more than just God revealing himself to, through creation. It's more than God just revealing himself through our consciences. That's what's known as general revelation. That's the type of thing Paul talks about in Romans chapter 1, that the glory and power of God is revealed through what has been created. This is more than that. This is deeper than that, the Word of God. This is special revelation. It is God revealing to humanity, to you, to your kids, to your spouses, God revealing to you His character, His will, His desire, what He wants in your life. Not what I want in your life. What God wants in your life is described and laid out in Scripture. It lays out his redemption of us, his buying back of us so we can be set free. We can genuinely know God through his word. We know everything about God? No. Even in his word, God says, my ways are higher than your ways, my thoughts are higher than your thoughts. But we can know who he is. We can know what he is. We can know how he works. Church, we can know how he thinks through his word. The primary purpose of the Bible, says James Merritt, is not to know the Bible, but to know God. To know God. It's even a picture of who we are. The Bible tells you who who human beings are. The Bible tells you who you are, what you are, your nature, your relationship to God. And it's from the very beginning our role in creation. John 1, 1 says this, in the beginning was the word. He could have chosen anything. He could have chosen a number of different titles. He could have chosen a number of different subjects. He could have chosen a number of different natures of God or or characteristics of that nature. What does John say? In the beginning was the word. And the word was with God. And the word was God, a part of God and yet distinct from God. Him. It's the very word that we are given. The very word that God lays out for mankind. And when was it given? In the very beginning. The beginning of what? Pick something. Your life? This world? This creation? Time itself? The word is eternal. It describes the very nature of God. This special revelation is done for a reason. This incredible piece of armor that is given into our hands is here to do something for us, not just for God. How did it come into our hands? That's the second part of Scripture, the inspiration of Scripture. The inspiration of Scripture. We know you cannot separate God from His Word, and God is not separated in its construction. Church, the inspiration of Scripture refers to God's direction and directing the human writers of the Bible. God does that, and so often we will teach, and I will teach, you know, as we go through the letters, you know, Paul says this, or John says this, or James writes this, and that's fine, but it's just as accurate and perhaps more accurate. 
to say, God writes this. God says this. He's telling you this. Human writers of the Bible throughout time and God directing it from the very beginning. I like what Mark Hall has to say. The Bible was inscribed over a period of 2,000 years in times of war and in days of peace by kings, physicians, tax collectors, farmers, fishermen, singers, and shepherds. The marvel is that a library so perfectly cohesive could have been produced by such a diverse crowd over a period of time which staggers the imagination. Jesus is its grand subject, our good its design, and the glory of God is its end. And this direction was to assure that these human beings, fallible human beings, like you and me, but their lives given over to the Holy Spirit, that these human beings would write God's words, would display His message, not their own. In their original writings, in their original contexts, and for their original purposes. Speaking of purpose, I told you that there was a reason. I told you that there was a purpose behind the Word of God for us. 2 Timothy 3.16, you've heard this many, many times. All Scripture, not just a part. 1 Chronicles, listing a bunch of names. (laughs) Yeah, all Scripture is God-breathed. This is what Paul says to Timothy, is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, Training in righteousness. So why? So that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. I mean, there's a ton of people out there. Have no idea. Never never break open. Never open. Never read. Never understand the word of God. And for some reason, they have the nerve. They have the ignorance to call themselves a good person. It is through the Word of God that that good is revealed. Not only that, it's how we are equipped to be this good work. Second Peter, we also have the prophetic message of something completely reliable. And you will do well to pay attention to it as to a light shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Above all, You must understand that no prophecy of Scripture came about by the prophet's own interpretation of things. I like the story of Balaam. You know, the king wanted him to prophesy against the Israelites. You know, say something bad about him. Say something horrible about him. And time after time, he comes back, he says, I can't. He wasn't even a great guy. I like the story of Jonah. Last thing in the world Jonah wanted to do was go to Nineveh. He couldn't stand the Ninevites. He didn't even want them saved. But what did he do? He showed up and said the word of God because he could do, he could not do otherwise. For prophecy never had its origin in the human will, but prophets through human, though human, spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit, constructed by God, inspired by God. This is the Spirit of God working, moving, speaking in the minds and hearts of those, number one, who held the pen, number two, those who compiled the canon, number three, those who paid attention. Those who paid attention. Those who submitted themselves to the will of God to be instruments by God. Sometimes God actually spoke in an audible voice as he was directing a service. Moses is a great example of this. But most of the time, God was urging and directing through the mind, through the spirit. 
of these human beings to write his word. God wrote it all. But can we trust it? Can we trust even that if it's done through human beings? And that leads us to point number three, the inerrancy of Scripture. The inerrancy of Scripture. Like what Paul Hovey says, he's a, he's a, used to be a past, uh, pastor, Presbyterian minister in Oregon. He says this, men do not reject the Bible because it contradicts itself, but because it contradicts them. And a truer word was never spoken. The Bible doesn't contradict itself. It is without error. The Bible is completely true, church. It is completely trustworthy, without contradiction, regardless of the subject. And there's a lot of subjects in Scripture. They may not, may not be the subjects that are, are, are forefront in your mind. But they're the subjects that we need to know that last throughout time that really make the difference and make the change and make the transformation in our lives. The Bible is woven together seamlessly from beginning to end. It is the guide and it is infallible towards salvation. It is the only means by which we understand and are acquainted with and introduced to salvation. It must be studied though. It must be studied in its proper context. And please don't for a sec- I can I can name I can name a hundred people. Don't for a second think that it's just the preacher telling you you, you got to study. That only preachers study scripture. Only Sunday school teachers study scripture on a daily basis. I've talked to lay men and women all over the place. I'll ask them a question. The first thing they do is go to the word of God. What's it say? Everything in life is filtered through this because it has become a part of their very being. It must be studied in order to see this seamless tapestry that goes through it in its proper context. Because you can take it out of context and you can do some damage with it. That's what Satan did. Satan does this all the time, but he did it in front of Christ in the showdown of the desert. Matthew chapter 4, you should read that. It's an incredible power. Without study and context, it can become even more confusing. It's important to realize it. I get asked questions about the New Testament a lot. Letters, right? Letters written from Paul. Letters written from John. Letters written from James or Jude or I mean, whoever. Peter. I think that's all. Letters. And, and, and often, and there's nothing wrong with this, someone will pick out a, a verse and a chapter. And they'll say, I don't understand this. I don't, I don't, I don't understand what this means. I'd say, well, that, you know, that's chapter 11. And this is a letter. So in order to understand chapter 11, you've got to understand chapter 10. In order to understand chapter 10, you've got to understand chapter 9. And you've got to understand chapter 8 because Paul wrote this as a letter. And by the time then you get to chapter 11, now it's going to start becoming more clear than it is now. The study of Scripture in its context. Old Testament. So much of the Old Testament is narrative. Well, I don't know what God wants to say, what He's trying to teach, what He's trying to show in this point in the story. Well, where did you start the story? In the middle. Well, let's start at the beginning. Maybe by then we can see it in its proper context. And we see this incredible story 
from Genesis to Revelation. Because of that, we cannot, we should not ignore any piece of Scripture, but study its entire beauty. Matthew 5, for, I truly, for truly I tell you, this is the words of Jesus, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen, will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. All of it is perfect. I like Hebrews chapter 6 because God wanted to make his unchanging nature of his purpose very clear to the heirs of what he promised, the heirs of the promise to Abraham. He confirmed it with an oath. God did this so that by two unchanging things in which it is impossible for God to lie. Did you know that there's some things that are impossible for God to do? Lying is one of them. Can't do it. Doesn't exist. In this universe or any other universe or the Marvel universe. Doesn't exist. God can't lie. We who have fled to take hold of the hope set before us may be greatly encouraged. We have this hope as an anchor for the soul, firm and secure. The Bible is given by God to us and is without blemish, is without mistake. Because of that, because it is inerrant, because it inspired, because it is a specific or special revelation to you and me, it must be obeyed. We don't like that word, do we? I don't know which word we hate more, obey or submit. Bottom line is we don't like either one of them. The Bible must be obeyed, the Bible must be submitted to, and it must be honored. The Bible is the first and last measure in your life and everyone else's, whether they know it or not. And this is perhaps our biggest challenge. Leads us to point number four, the authority of Scripture. And this, you see this on your bulletin cover. For many people, the Bible is like the Queen of England. She holds the top position but has no real power, says Tony Evans. All of this, church... And I, I hope you take this seriously. Because if you don't, there just isn't anything anybody can do for you. Everything that we've learned over the past few weeks, everything that we've learned today, everything that you learned yesterday or a year ago or 20 years ago, everything means nothing if we do not put ourselves under the authority of God. Not the idea of God. Not an invented picture of God. Well, how do I know? Well, we've already talked about that. The Bible reveals the nature, character, and will of God. To put ourselves under the authority and submit to the authority of God. Submitting to the authority of Scripture, submitting to the authority of God is the same thing. We know that from John chapter 1. And only you can do it. We don't like to hear that either. If you don't submit to the authority of Scripture, there's nothing I can do about that. If we don't listen to the direction, guidance, commands, even forgiveness of God, if we don't choose to accept that in our lives, each individual person, there isn't anything anybody else can do about that. There's not a whole lot of things in life like this. It is all on you. All of it. Others can teach you. 
They can either teach you correctly or incorrectly. Others could teach you. They could teach us. But only you as the individual can respond. You know, we have, I think, I always say particularly today, that's probably not the case. It just seems like it because we're alive today. But we do tend to have, I think, a tendency to submit to the authority of people over the authority of God. Should we submit to the ruling authority? Absolutely. Absolutely, you better. That's what God tells us to do in Romans chapter 13. Let everyone be subject to the governing authorities. For there's no authority except that which God has established. The authorities that exist have been established by God. By the way, Jesus says this in a different way earlier on. Consequently, whoever rebels against authority is rebelling against what God has instituted. And those who do so will bring judgment on themselves. And Paul here is not just talking about church authority. He's talking about all authority established by God. Even submission to governing authority is submission to the Word. But, and you better pay attention because it's a big one. But, so long as they do not contradict the Word of God. Do you know? Do you know what contradicts the Word of God? When something is said, when something is commanded, when something is demanded, when something is asked, do you know if it contradicts the Word of God? Or do we just suspect? Or do we have no idea? We have the sword. You can take it home today, and you can practice with it. You don't have to practice with it on Sunday morning. You can practice with it tomorrow morning. Do we know if something contradicts the Word of God? Acts chapter 4, then they called them in again. That's the Sanhedrin calling in Peter and John and commanded them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John replied, which is right in God's eyes, to listen to you or listen to him? You be the judge. As for us, we cannot help speaking about what we've seen and heard. Again, Peter speaks. They bring him back in there in Acts chapter 5. We gave you strict orders not to teach in his name. But yet you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching and are determined to make us guilty of this man's blood. Verse 29, Peter and the other apostles replied, we must obey God rather than human beings. That is submission to the Word of God. Those two things go together, church. We must obey God rather than human beings. Who else is a human being? You are. I am. We must obey God rather than human beings. So forget about everything else we've just talked about, just for a moment. We use the example of one external authority against another external authority, but here, here's a third. The third is our own minds and hearts. The third, our own wills. That's the other authority. To the Christian, God's Word has authority over that as well. And I see that play out in people's lives, and I see it completely rejected in people's lives both of which claim to know Jesus. To submit to the authority of Scripture means that we believe in Jesus, we obey God by believing and obeying His Word. We must not just read, church, we must apply. If you don't learn anything, learn this. The Word of God is not just for information. You've probably heard this before. It's not just for information. 
purpose of the word of God is for transformation. Transformation. To be different tomorrow than you are today because of the direction and power and authority of the living, living, active, breathing, moving word of God. How do I know, then, what the Word of God even says? Can I know if there's a contradiction to it from authorities around or even my own heart? That leads us to points five and six, the clarity of Scripture and the illumination of Scripture. I put these things together because they are related. Because God gave His Word as authoritative, because He gave it as trustworthy and without error, He gave it in a way that can and should be understood by those who seek. 1 Corinthians 1.18, for the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. The Holy Spirit helps us, opens our eyes, opens our minds if we listen and if we submit to its leadership. It opens our eyes to illuminate the truth of Scripture if we look and if we listen. Because we have the ability to know and to understand and to apply. Complaining about a silent God with a closed Bible is like complaining about no phone calls with your phone turned off. That's just the way life works. And this is no different, church. This is not something we're inventing today. It's no different than Jesus speaking in parables in Matthew chapter 13. Matthew chapter 13 says this, starting in verse 10. The disciples came to him after he'd told some parables, and they asked him, why do you keep speaking in parables? <laughs> Jesus, why don't you just give us the answer, okay? Well, why do you got to, it seems like you're hiding stuff. You ever read through Scripture and wonder that? Well, why, why can't you just come out and say it? As you read, through, this makes no sense to me. Why don't you just tell me, God? Why do you speak in parables? He replied, because the knowledge of the secrets of the kingdom of heaven has been given to you, but not to them. Whoever has will be given more, and they will have an abundance. Whoever does not have, even what they have will be taken from them. He talks about that in a parable of the sower and the seeds. We're going to talk about that next week. Those who want, those who seek, those who look, those who desire, those who crave. What does Jesus say? They're going to get even more of this understanding of the kingdom of God. And those who don't, church, those who don't want to, Jesus says what they have is going to be taken away from them. That little bit of knowledge, that little bit of understanding, that little bit of desire, Jesus says that's leaving, that's out of here. Why? Because Jesus doesn't waste things. You can see that in all of his miracles. He says, this is why I speak to them in parables in verse 13. Though seeing, they do not see. Though hearing, they do not hear or understand. In them is fulfilled the prophecy of Isaiah. You will be ever hearing, but never understanding. You'll be ever seeing, but never perceiving. For this people's heart has become callous. They hardly hear with their ears. They've closed their eyes. Otherwise, they would see with their eyes and hear with their ears, understand with their hearts and turn, and then I would heal them. But blessed are your eyes because they see and your ears because they hear. For truly I tell you, this is about the revelation in the word of God, the kingdom of God through Jesus Christ. He says, for truly I tell you, prophets and righteous people from the Old Testament, I'm paraphrasing there, people long ago longed to see what you have seen and to hear what you have heard. But they didn't see it. They didn't hear it. 
Jesus taught in parables so that we might search. The Bible is written so that we might search. Ask any teacher worth their salt, any at all. They don't just give a list of answers, you know, right before the test. Tell the students to memorize this quickly and then fill in the blanks. None of them do that. Not if they care. They tell their students to seek, to study, to learn, to know, to let the knowledge become a part of you. That's what it means. That's what it takes to be a master swordsman. That's what it takes to see the clarification and the illumination of Scripture. I guarantee you, church, if we are ignorant of God's Word, we will always be ignorant of His will. Always. That leads us to the last point, preservation of Scripture. Dr. Wedlow used to tell me in class, well, he told everybody this all the time, the Bible can never mean what it never meant. The Bible can never mean what it never meant. There is no doubt that the Bible is the most scrutinized book in all of human history. Proverbs 12 says this. This won't be on your screen. Proverbs 12 says, Truthful words stand the test of time, but lies are soon exposed. God's word from the very beginning has stood the test of time. And it will stand the test tomorrow. And it will stand the test 20 years from now. It will stand the test when you're old. It will stand the test after you've gone. The Word of God stands the test of time. It's as true and as relevant today as it was 2,000 years ago. As Jesus is the same, so is His Word. Again, we know that from John 1.1. They are connected. They are the same and yet distinct. We know that to change the Word in meaning or context or usage is to attempt to change the very nature of God, and that is impossible. God's hand orchestrated the combination of these ancient works into the canon of Scripture that we see today. And by the way, if you've never done a history study on that, you ought to. It is fascinating to see how God uses people all over the world. People don't even believe in Him to bring the Bible to completion in what we see today. It is complete. It is eternal. And I don't believe for a second that it's a coincidence that at the very end of the very last chapter of the very last book, in Scripture says this, Revelation 22, starting in verse 18. There's only 22 verses, I think, in the book. Maybe 23. Anyway, Revelation 22, uh, starting in verse 18. I warn everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this scroll, if anyone adds anything to them, God will add to that person the plagues described in this scroll. And if anyone takes away from, uh, from this scroll of prophecy, God will take away from that person any share in the tree of life and in the holy city, which are described in this scroll. He who testifies to these things says, yes, I am coming soon. Amen. So let it be. Come, Lord Jesus. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with God's people. So let it be. The word of God, church, is the single greatest gift ever given to man. And it is some of the most incredible power at your fingertips. We just got to learn how to use it and direct it. There's no such thing as there is no such thing as someone who can accept the living word of Jesus Christ and reject the written word. It doesn't exist. We may think it exists, but it doesn't exist. Understanding of the word gives each life tremendous power. Not over flesh and blood, but over the spiritual forces of evil in this dark world. We're close with this. 
Hebrews chapter 4. For the word of God is alive and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. Nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of Him to whom we must give an account. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who ascended into heaven, Jesus the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. For we don't have a high priest that's unable to empathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who's been tempted in every way just as we are, yet he did not sin. Let us then, listen closely, approach God's throne of grace with confidence. Church, the more and more you know your sword, the more and more you become a master swordsman. I promise you, the more and more that confidence soars approaching the throne of grace. And what do we receive? So that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of battle. Of battle. Let's pray. Father, we thank you. We thank you for the love that you've given us. We thank you, Father, that we can know you, that you can know us. I thank you, Father, that you have deigned to give us this opportunity to glimpse into your mind, the mind of the one and only Holy God. Father, I ask that you help us to use this to learn, to understand, to apply, to be strengthened by your eternal word, to make it become a part of our very lives, that it is our definition. In Jesus' name, amen. Please stand and sing. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not try
um, just a glimpse. That would be lesson one, roughly, um, uh, first subjects of this new class that's coming up. And then you look at the nature of God, you look at all kinds of things. Um, and they'll be conversing, obviously, and questions in those classes, so it won't go as quickly as we did today. But it gives you a taste of some of the things that maybe you can go over, be reminded of, and learn in this new class that starts the second Sunday in September. We're still working out a few other details, but that's when it's going to start. Okay? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the, the revelation that you've given us through your word. We thank you that, that we wouldn't know you, your, 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 your very nature without your word. Father, help us to apply that to our lives. Help us to feed off of it for the very strength that we need. In Jesus' name, amen.